You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For January 6th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Well, it's a new year, and I'm sure we're all glad to put 2020 behind us. To be sure, we're not out of the woods yet as far as the pandemic goes, but at least we can start looking forward to better days ahead and imagine returning to a semblance of normality before 2021 is over. Personally, I'm eager to spend a lot less time worrying about the rolling disaster of the present and a lot more time thinking about the progress we can make on energy transition as we move ahead. To kick off the new year, I wanted to start with where the action is, China. It consumes more coal and produces more CO2 than any other nation on Earth. It also has more installed capacity for wind and solar than any other nation, and the largest long-distance high-voltage electricity transmission grid, and more electric vehicles, including electric transit buses, and more high-speed rail, and it produces more steel and cement and housing and, well, just about everything than any other country in the world. If the energy transition is to be a success, it cannot happen without China. But for those of us in the West who can't read Mandarin, trying to understand what's happening there and trying to make sense of conflicting information and narratives that can be equally true is nearly impossible. There's often a large gap between the official data and pronouncements and the facts on the ground, which cannot be reconciled without a clear understanding of the social and political dynamics of this most complex nation, not to mention a keen ear for what is unsaid as much as what is said. And because it is evolving and changing so quickly, it's easy to get rooted in an outdated understanding of what is happening in China. Perhaps you heard 10 years ago that China was building a new coal-fired power plant every three days. But did you know that its coal power plants are now running less than half the time and are increasingly uneconomic? In other words, although some coal plants are still getting built, albeit at not nearly the rate they were a decade ago, that doesn't mean they'll actually be used. And did you know that China's latest official plans imply a massive expansion of wind, solar, and nuclear by 2050, ending emissions growth nationally by 2030, and reaching net zero emissions by 2060? Fortunately, we have an excellent English-speaking guest today who has studied China's energy sector for years and has a good understanding of what's happening in its energy transition. Lauri Mulivirta is the lead analyst and co-founder of the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air, an independent research organization that studies air pollution. With over 10 years' experience as an air pollution and climate expert, Lauri has led numerous research projects on air pollution, including more than a dozen modeling studies of the air quality and health impacts of coal-fired power plants, with a focus on Asia, Europe, and South Africa. He has served as a member of the Technical Working Group on Regulating Emissions from Large Combustion Plants in the EU, and currently serves as a member of the Expert Panel on Regulating SO2 Emissions in South Africa. He has a wealth of knowledge about the trends for emissions and coal across Asia, and has written numerous articles about various aspects of what's happening in China, which you can find linked into the show notes of this episode. So it's a real privilege to have him on the show. 
Then in the news segment, we'll look at the record-shattering growth of storage in the U.S., and we'll do another exciting episode of Cold Death Watch. And now, our conversation with Laurie Mullivirta, recorded December 14th, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Laurie, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, I've been following your analysis and commentary on the energy transition in China for at least a year now, and I've always found your perspective helpful and clarifying. You know, that's not something I can really say about mm-hmm. much of the commentary on China, which is often quite slanted one way or the other. So I wanted to have you on the show to share your views with our listeners, because as we all know, China is now the leading nation in terms of CO2 emissions, accounting for almost 30% of the world's CO2 emissions, more than half of the coal consumption. And it has half of the global coal-fired power capacity. So what China does has enormous implications for the trajectory of energy transition globally. Now, obviously, this is a huge subject, and we can barely scratch the surface of it in a podcast interview. But I do want to talk about China's coal sector specifically, as well as how they're coming along with building new wind and solar plants and the grid support they'll require. And I want to hear your analysis of their new five-year plan and of their recently announced target to become carbon neutral by 2060. But let's start with coal. In March of 2020, you wrote a piece for Carbon Brief in which you reviewed China's 18-year-long spree of building more coal-fired power plants than the rest of the world combined every year. You explained how they wound up with more coal capacity than they need and why they're still building more of these coal plants anyway, a topic that we discussed with Tim Buckley back in episodes 91 and 93. And you speculated about what they might do under their next five-year plan covering 2021 through 2025, which they may announce within the next few months. So maybe you could recap that history just a bit for our listeners. Like, why did they build so much coal capacity in the first place? I think you have to look at it from the perspective of China's economic model, which is very heavily biased towards investment, fixed asset investment and construction. China spends half of its GDP on building stuff out of steel and cement. So it's not just coal-fired power plants where you have overcapacity. You have overcapacity of steel, cement, just about every bulk industry that there is. And you also have oversupply of everything from technology parks to airports to roads to shopping malls and so on. So for the past decade and a bit, the economy has been essentially hooked on excessive amounts of capital expenditure ever since the financial stimulus that was started in response to the global financial crisis in 2008. And then there are, of course, aspects of this that are specific to the power sector. So thermal power plants, coal-fired power plants are developed by state-owned enterprises in China, which have still a soft budget constraint. So that's a fancy way of saying they don't really have to care about whether they turn a profit or not. They have extremely favorable access to capital from state-owned banks. And in general, they have a mentality and even, even the management performance evaluation criteria emphasize maximizing output and maximizing investment over maximizing efficiency or profitability. So all of these factors are rigged towards maximizing investment. 
I get that, that if you're doing state-sponsored construction of things, especially if you don't have to worry about turning a profit, that things can get out of control. But this seems so extreme. I mean, surely even China cares about capital efficiency <laughs> at some level, right? Surely as you see these plants just not getting used, and as you can see more and more overcapacity building up, somebody would stop for a minute and go, eh, maybe we shouldn't be building any more of this. How did it continue well beyond the point where any of these assets were obviously needed. I think this perplexes people who focus exclusively on the power sector or energy sector. But for people who look at this from the economic point of view, the way economic planning works in China is you have a GDP target. You start from that. Our GDP has to post growth of 6%, 6.5%, whatever it is this year. Then you project we think consumption is going to grow this much, exports are going to grow this much, and then there's a gap between those, between that kind of organic growth and between what you're targeting. And all of the rest has to be met with capital expenditure, with fixed asset investment. Hmm. And so as long as this is how economic planning works, you absolutely cannot start interfering with unproductive investment, because that just means you're not going to hit your GDP target. There's just no way an economy can keep investing 50% of its GDP year after year and have all of that investment be economically justified or profitable for a long period of time. Hmm. That is actually a very helpful clarifying point. Certainly a strange concept to those of us who live in capitalistic systems. But then, as you note in your article, demand for coal-fired power in China has been declining. The utilization of the plants, the capacity factor, as we refer it in the energy world, started dropping below 60% in 2011, just as the developed world was pulling out of the financial crisis and the Great Recession. And it has continued to drop ever since, where the average capacity factor, I think, is under 50% today. And that's the point at which, at least in the U.S., coal plants start getting closed because their operating expenses just aren't worth keeping them open to run for less than half the time. So why did the demand for coal power fall in China and what did the government do about it? Coal-fired generation has actually been increasing since 2017. So the reason why capacity factors have continued to fall further is that capacity has been increasing even faster than generation. Hmm. So there was a period of time from 2013 to 2017 when coal-fired power generation was falling in absolute terms. And that was when the leadership made a decision that they're going to try and shift the economy away from this kind of dependence on excessive levels of stimulus or excessive levels of investment that I described. So there was a domestic industrial downturn in China However, around the end of 2015, the financial pain from that attempted rapid transition just became too much. And at that point, the government, in fact, did two things. One part of the government tried to cut capacity and control output of coal and so on to try and prop up commodity prices and the other one went on another building spree and the combination of those was 
the huge spikes in commodity prices, especially coal price that we saw in 2016-2017. So that was when the government changed uh, tack and went on another building spree and we've seen emissions creep up ever since. But the capacity factors of coal-fired power plants have failed to recover because construction of already suspended projects was restarted and recently permitting has been loosened up again with more permits coming through. So capacity keeps increasing. Well, in the middle of the last decade, what was that slump about that you referred to? So it was effectively about the massive construction stimulus, the massive stimulus program that was started in 2008 mm. wearing off. So 2008 to 2012, that stimulus program where China famously used more cement in three years than the United States during its entire history, that stimulus program wore out around 2013. That's when first China's coal imports and other commodity imports slumped and then domestic output started to slump as well. So I remember back in 2015 in China, if you spoke to anyone who was in business or industry, all they could talk about is how bad things are. And it was weird because it wasn't acknowledged officially as a depression or a slump. So so a few people outside of China realized how steep it was. And that stimulus program that had been in place circa 2008, that had to do with Back then, we were hearing these stories about China building these ghost cities, like, you know, massive amounts of construction of like whole new cities where there wasn't even anybody living in them. Was that part of the stimulus program you're talking about? Absolutely. So the stimulus program officially focused on infrastructure. So the headline projects were all about building roads and bridges and airports and and so on. But obviously, a lot of industrial capacity came with that to produce all the steel and the cement needed for those projects. And the real estate sector also overheated at some point. I think it was the Chinese Academy of Sciences said that there was enough planned real estate to house the entire country one and a half times over. So that sector also overheated. And then at some point around 2011, 2012, the leadership took the foot of the pedal and said that we're now going to shift to a new economic model. This model of of investment-driven growth has run its course. We're going to have an economy that's driven by household consumption, by services, by high-tech industries rather than construction and energy-intensive bulk industries. So then that transition turned out to be quite a bit more complicated than they initially envisioned. That's fascinating. I mean, (laughs) here in the West, I heard almost nothing about this. Like, we saw these crazy stories about these ghost cities, but nobody could really explain, like, what they were thinking or where this whole program was going. Nobody talked about how there was this deliberate Chinese move from investing in infrastructure to sort of more organic growth within the economy itself. It's just fascinating to me to hear you explain it this way. So what about those ghost cities before we move on? Because that always just seems so curious to me, such a massive expenditure of wealth to do that. Are those cities now inhabited? 
the worst examples were written off in the past few years. Places like Tianjin and the northeastern provinces. They had new governors come in and those governors just looked at the economic numbers that the provinces were reporting to Beijing and got on the phone and said, guys, there's a problem. So they basically figured that they have to come clean because otherwise they're going to have to continue the extent and pretend of their predecessor. And so those provinces have taken massive write-downs on their GDP on these investments. But a lot of other provinces where obviously there were equally unproductive investments have never written them down because they have enough of healthy economic activity that they can keep extending and pretending. So I'm sure a lot of that investment is still in the books. So you're saying that there is, in fact, still a lot of real estate that they built out there just empty. There definitely is. It's very hard to get to the bottom of. But when people have done surveys based on everything from how many apartments actually turn their lights on and so on, or just surveys of neighborhoods and so on, the occupancy of real estate is very low. That is just mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, but as long as the market keeps going up, there's no harm in owning two or three apartments and living in one of them. In fact, people are reluctant to rent because rents are so low huh. in comparison to the real estate prices so that they don't want people messing up their nice little nest egg. Rather, just keep it empty and wait for the price to go up. Interesting. So they built all this new unnecessary housing capacity and then sold it to average citizens as an investment strategy. Absolutely. And of course, you know, it's more nuanced than that. There are large cities where there's definitely demand for a lot more real estate. People are living in very cramped spaces, certainly by American standards, but also by European standards and so on. So there is a market where this real estate is needed. It's just currently locked up in these investment seams rather than occupied and rented out. And then there are these developments in the middle of nowhere that have very low occupancy and just have absolutely no real reason to be there. Then there's things like local governments just moving offices there and so on and just have someone live there and huh. have it not be completely empty. Wow. <laughs> that just blows my mind. Well. Thank you for that little excursion, because that just always puzzled and fascinated me, this whole concept of building ghost cities. But let's return to energy. As you explained in your piece, there's about 100 gigawatts of new capacity in coal plants under construction right now. And the industry group for China's power sector giants, China Electricity Council, has argued that coal-fired capacity will climb by one-third from about a terawatt today to 1.3 terawatts by 2030. And that's on net after accounting for the retirement of older plants. But if the existing fleet of coal plants is only running sort of less than half the time today, why would they plan to build a third more capacity? Is it just taking us back to the same old sort of infrastructure-driven stimulus spending? There's obviously different interests here. So the local governments are the ones who just favor any 
development in their area. Mm. These large power sector giants can't be as indiscriminate in their spending. But as I said, they still have the interest and the incentive to try and build as much as they can, grab market share and so on. My take is that this is above all about making sure that those plants that have already been put under construction and so on are safe from any clampdown on overcapacity. And then there's the general impulse to just keep building and for the thermal power sector to secure market share. There's also a phenomenon in China that is a bit hard for me to understand why the big national level power groups play along with it, but it's very clear on the province level, which is that Chinese provinces are extremely mercantilist. They don't want to buy electricity or anything else from the outside. That's the reason why every province has its own coal power fleet, every province has its own cement industry, steel industry, and so on. Really? Because it's all about maximizing GDP. And when you buy from another province, the GDP gets booked in that other province. And if you look at the industrial structure, it makes no sense. There's absolutely no reason why every province should have all of those industries, because some of them are going to have a natural advantage over others in those industries. Well, sure, it's inefficient. Absolutely. But so that's the basic logic. And now... The issue is that China's power demand has been very flat historically because power demand was so heavily dominated by industry. But now when household demand and service sector demand for cooling and heating and appliances and so on is going up, the peaks in power demand are becoming sharper and higher. And that just means that you need more capacity in relation to the average demand to cover the peaks. And the way capacity is being planned currently is that every province wants to have enough capacity to cover its own peaks so that even during the peak hours or peak days, they don't have to purchase from the next province. And that just leads to an enormous amount of redundant capacity. So when we've analyzed the capacity adequacy, the amount of capacity that China needs to meet peak load, I can completely understand why you would say that by 2025, we're going to need 1,250 gigawatts of coal-fired power. If you assume that every province is going to have its own capacity, but that's incredibly inefficient. And if you start to balance the load between the neighboring provinces that are a part of the same grid region that need for more capacity just completely disappears. Fascinating. In some ways, it's sort of the opposite of what you might expect. I mean, at least to a Westerner, when we think about the central top-down planned economy of China, I think we imagine that, you know, especially since so many of these industries are nationalized, that there would be some sort of master plan, I suppose, for electricity generation to be optimized across the whole country rather than optimized to each little locality. That's sort of the opposite mm -hmm. of what you would expect from a central planned economy, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's centrally planned, but locally executed, uh. which is very different. 
Fascinating. So you note that in your article that there are a number of domestic analysts within China who question this outlook for such increased demand for coal power in the future. They're pointing out that this kind of an increase would be incompatible with China's commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement, and they're pointing at the low capacity factors. And to meet the Paris goals, China's coal power capacity would have to plateau around now and start declining by around 2025. So What's that about? Are there two different points of view here, or why is one faction, if you will, projecting increased demand for coal power, and another faction disputing that? Where do I start? <laughs> Tough question. <laughs> yeah, there's genuinely a very large rift between the different parts of the expert community and and the energy planning community. I would say that the divergence between different views among the expert community is about as wide as it gets in China, and people are of course approaching this from different viewpoints. One of them is the climate viewpoint, the the big success for people who are advocating a more proactive, maybe more responsible approach to to climate change was. Getting the 2060 carbon neutrality pledge that is definitely changing the longer-term outlook in China, but I think in the context of how much coal-fired power to build, say in the next five years, the even stronger opposition is the financial regulators and uh, financial experts who worry about the profitability of. State-owned enterprises who worry about excessive debt and so on. So for me, the most interesting development was when Sasac, the state-owned enterprise watchdog, called for consolidation and closure of older power plants and so on to address the overcapacity issue. So these are the guys who control the entire central state-owned sector, and obviously. Their portfolio, in terms of return on assets and so on, isn't anything to write home about because the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, have been slush funds for local officials to get big projects and prop up their GDP. Interesting. So there's actually quite a political dimension to that too. Then well, China is now in the middle of coming up with the new five-year plan. So I genuinely feel that after. The 2060 announcement. There is a lot of space for for different views and the expectations for things like coal-fired power capacity, wind and solar and so on capacity that were already quite settled on the first half of this year are all at play again because somehow this short-term planning needs to be aligned with the long-term ambition. Okay, well, let's talk about that next five-year plan then. What do you think it'll call for in terms of coal plant capacity? I'm worried that it's still going to authorize a fairly significant increase. So there's the fact that there's a hundred gigawatts under construction, and there is the issue that currently power system planning is being done as if every province is an island, which just makes it look like you need a lot of capacity and. The thermal power lobby has managed to frame 
the entire planning exercise in this way, then they've really framed it in a way that if we don't get these coal plants, the lights are going to go out, which they obviously aren't. You're just going to have to sometimes buy a bit of power from the neighboring province or import it through the long-distance transmission lines that China has been building at an incredibly ambitious scale. But that's the way the planning exercise has been framed. And overall, China's economic model is incredibly good at mobilizing capital, at scaling up investment. So I think we are going to see a very strong increase in the amount of wind and solar, at least, that are getting installed every year from the already impressive levels currently. But scaling down things that are not desirable, like coal-fired power plants, is a lot harder because of the way the political economy works. Hmm. Well, you know, meanwhile, China has continued to build new wind and solar plants as well, which is certainly part of the reason why the coal sector has been under pressure and why those capacity factors have been falling. Can you give us a bit of perspective on what China's official plans are for the renewable sector and how far along they are with those plans? So just to start with the scale of things, this year China is going to install something like 35 gigawatts of wind and 40 gigawatts of solar. And that's down from a few years ago. This year's numbers obviously were affected by the COVID-19 lockdowns. Right. So Germany's got a total of, what, 60 gigawatts of wind, 50 gigawatts of solar. So the record years for China are installing almost Germany's entire capacity in one year. Wow. So when researchers have looked at what will it take to peak China's emissions under current projections of energy demand and power demand, current projections of how much hydro and nuclear are going to be there, and the nuclear plants are ambitious as well, what it looks like is you're going to need to double the scale of installations of wind and solar from those levels. So you're going to need more than 100 gigawatts of wind and solar combined installed every year from now to 2030. In order to meet the Paris targets? In order to meet the target of peaking carbon dioxide emissions before 2030, and much more directly, last Saturday, President Xi spoke at the Climate Ambition Summit, which had dozens of heads of state that have made substantial new pledges this year speaking. He made a speech and announced strengthened targets for 2030 for carbon dioxide intensity, for total share of non-fossile energy, so total share of renewable energy and nuclear out of total energy consumption, and a new target for the total capacity of wind and solar power that China will install by 2030. But out of those, the the non-fossile energy target is actually the one to watch out for. So uh, in the past couple of days after President Xi's speech, I've been working out the math of how much wind and solar you're in actual fact going to need by 2030 in order to have 25% of all of your energy, not just electricity, all of your energy coming from non-fossile sources. And if you take the amount of hydro that is expected, if you take 
the current targets that the nuclear industry has set for itself, which are very ambitious, I think they're going to fall short. But if you take those at face value, then how much wind and solar are you going to need? And that amounts to something like 1,600, 1,800 gigawatts of wind and solar combined in 2030. Fascinating. Yeah, that's really interesting that your own calculations show that because I was also looking at an article you wrote in Carbon Brief recently where you talked about the policy recommendations that two influential Chinese climate research institutes had been putting out for how China might meet this new goal uh, announced by President Xi to get to net zero by 2060 in terms of emissions, what they call carbon neutrality. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you to explain what exactly they mean by that, because there's a lot of different Mm -hmm. ways to say that you're doing that. But in the scenarios offered by both of these institutes, China comes close to phasing out fossil fuels with more than 85% of all energy and more than 90% of all electricity coming from non-fossil sources, mainly renewables and nuclear, by 2050. But if you back up from that, that implies, as you say, a major expansion of wind and solar and nuclear by 2050. And these institutes expect emissions growth to stop by 2030 or so, and then start falling toward this net zero goal by by 2060. So I don't know, I guess I have so many questions about this, but do these seem like reasonable goals to you? I mean, this is a really a lot of construction. Now, obviously, if they're willing to go out and build ghost cities, they could bloody well put up a terawatt of you know new wind and solar and nuclear but do these things seem like reasonable objectives to you the things they would actually do and and what do these scenarios imply about exactly when china's emissions have to peak the 2060 carbon neutrality goal or reaching carbon neutrality before 2060 is a big one so before this announcement was made in September, I would say that the biggest concern that I had, and I think anyone who seriously thinks about what global emissions over this century are going to look like, was that, okay, China's already said that emissions are going to peak around 2030. That's not a very tough target to meet. They're probably going to meet earlier, and we have that commitment as a backstop. But what's going to happen after? It's very easy to imagine a scenario where emissions growth stops and there is very slow, gradual decline, but emissions stay high for decades afterwards. And the fact that President Xi came out with this carbon neutrality target just changed that outlook and made it clear that after the emissions peak, what China is going to be targeting is rapid reductions in emissions. So that's a very powerful signal to the rest of the world. And I would say most importantly to China's domestic planners, businesses, state-owned enterprises, and so on. So that was an important target. The current logic is that China will peak emissions by some time before 2030 and then start reducing emissions I think, and a lot of Chinese researchers think that the emissions are ripe to peak faster and the easier, more economic, more efficient way to get to that carbon neutrality goal would be to peak much earlier. So currently the concern is 
that the message that we're getting is that the next decade will be ambitious on clean energy, but not ambitious on on really bending the curve on emissions and then that's something that gets uh, sorted out after 2030. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to a new report from the Energy Storage Association and Wood Mackenzie, energy storage deployments in the U.S. are shattering previous records. 476 megawatts of storage were deployed in the U.S. in the third quarter of 2020, an increase of 240% over the previous high set in the second quarter. By far, the biggest driver of the growth was so-called front-of-the-meter installations, in other words, utility projects. This market segment accounted for 400 of the 476 megawatts installed in Q3, as compared with 133 megawatts in Q2. More utility projects were installed in Q3 than were installed across all market segments during any other quarter over the past seven years. The key reason for all this activity? Resilience. And the primary market? California. The inescapable conclusion, in my view, is that deploying large storage systems is part of how California intends to address increasing wildfire threats to grid stability that caused an unprecedented number of public safety power shutoffs during the wildfire season of 2020. However, the Energy Storage Association expect the strong growth of the storage sector to continue, with residential storage expanding six-fold through 2025, and increasingly active markets in New York, Massachusetts, the PJM, Texas, and Florida, among others. And, as we discussed with Jason Berwin in episode 134, FERC Order 2222 is expected to drive additional growth. And now it's time for everybody's favorite recurring segment, Cold Death Watch! Item 2. 
In early December, two more U.S. coal mining companies filed for bankruptcy. White Stallion Energy LLC and Lighthouse Resources Inc. hope to sell their assets through a bankruptcy. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.